1 Corinthians 10, starting then at verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And then over to chapter 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worst. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized when you come together. It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No. I will not, for I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this as often as you do this, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill. Some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Let's again bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for the written Word. We pray that this morning, Pastor Bob will explain it to us in better thought. We pray that you will comfort or strengthen him and give him the courage to preach the truth and nothing but the truth. We pray that we will have open hearts, that we will hear it, that we will believe it, that as we take communion, we will realize how guilty we are and yet how we are saved. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The title of the message this morning is simply entitled, The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. I want you to think about that term, that phrase, the Lord's Supper. From our passage this morning, we want to look at three things in regards to that term, the Lord's Supper. One, that it is a biblical term. Secondly, that it is a possessive term. Thirdly, that it is a comforting term. You know, there are many words that are used to describe the meal that is before us. One could refer to it as Jude did in Jude verse 12 as a love feast, an agape feast. However, that probably is is in reference to that which was taking place at least in the church of Corinth prior to the Lord's Supper. You see, they they were having a meal together. Much of what we read in 1 Corinthians 11 is not so much about the particular act of participating in the Lord's Supper as much as it is about that which took place before when the church came together. Okay, They came together and they first had what we would say is a fellowship meal. We would say a pot trust. They came together to eat. And after they ate, they worshipped, and then came the Lord's Supper. Paul is saying the problem with their participation in the supper is that there was no love to begin with. That's what Jude is referencing in verse 12. So does it have to do with the whole of the service? Yes, it does. Does Jude's term deal specifically with with that which we refer to as the Lord's table? Probably not. There's others. There's the breaking of bread. Now, that's a term that in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we would say deals more specifically. So sometimes the Bible uses that phrase, the breaking of bread. There is the term communion. In uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, that's the idea that Paul is getting around there with the idea of the koinonia experience, the idea of communing together, the idea of communing with the Lord. It's more the, 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 the experience that, that happens and is created by the table, not necessarily about it itself. I know many of us perhaps probably grew up with calling this communion. Well, in a sense, yes, but the communion is that which is happening amongst us And that which is happening between us and the Lord. It's what's taking place, not necessarily a reference to the meal itself. But yet, we would use it. It's a biblical term that we would perhaps use. Even the term, and and this might surprise some of us, the term Eucharist that we sometimes hear in other places, and although it's been perhaps taken hostage and used in a, in a wrong sense, the idea of Eucharist is certainly a biblical term. It's the word we give to the giving thanks. And Jesus took the bread and he gave thanks, and he took the cup and he gave thanks. That's the Eucharist. That's the act of giving that thanks which is certainly part of it, 
Okay, certainly part of the act of what takes place, but it's not necessarily a reference to the table in and of itself. There are perhaps uh, terms that are used, such as the Last Supper. That's a frequent one. You hear people saying, we're having the Last Supper at our church. Actually, you'll not find the term in the New Testament. It's a common expression. We pretty much know what it references. Okay? But generally, the term Last Supper references not the act of this morning, but it's the remembrance of that which took place in the upper room. That's the Last Supper. Yet the Bible never terms it that. So that's one that we have created over time. The Eastern Orthodox Church refers to this as the divine liturgy. Once again, a term you would be hard-pressed to find in Scripture. And of course, uh, within uh, the Catholic tradition, this would be referenced to as the Mass, another non-biblical term. Or the actual table itself referenced as an altar which the New Testament certainly would not give us the right to do so. So what I'm saying is this. It's kind of interesting that a term that we are so familiar with that we return to and come to as the Lord's Supper is not found that often in Scripture. In fact, this is the only place where the phrase is used. The only place. One place in Scripture where it is named. You might think, oh, it's got to be throughout the Gospels. No, it isn't. That phrase, the Lord's Supper, only here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, stop and think about the term itself that we find Paul using here. Okay? It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, verse 20. Okay? First of all, you have the term Lords, that it, it's the sense of, of that it's identifying whose supper it is. Secondly, it is the word supper. It is reference to a meal. That's what the term is dealing with. A term uh, that says this is a meal that has to do with the Lord. Uh, it, it's, it's not any more complicated than that. It's, it's really not that drawn out. It's really not that difficult of a term. However, the meaning behind it is loaded, isn't it? When we stop to try to figure out, well, what exactly does that all mean? That's where books are written. Commentaries go on for pages and pages and pages. And discussions can be had over and over and over again. But the words of the text are plain. The Lord's Supper. Second point this morning. Not only is that a biblical term then, we find it on the pages of Scripture, there it is. We didn't invent it as Orthodox Presbyterians. Protestants didn't invent it. Okay? It's there. It's in Scripture. But secondly, the thing to note about it is that it is a possessive term. It is the Lord's Supper. Here, if you were to look it up, it, it's, it, this term Lord in this instant is used as, as an adjective to describe the supper. 
But when you go to the Greek and you try to figure out, okay, how, how would you express it? The expression would be the supper that belongs to the Lord. The supper that is owned by the Lord. The supper that one would say is the right of the Lord. Paul, and and the reason I went back and read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, is because there Paul talks about the Lord's table. The table of the Lord. There it's, it's in the possessive itself. It's saying this belongs not to little farms. This, this is not little farms. Now, you might say, well, isn't the wooden structure that we have these elements on belong to little? Yes, in that sense. But that's not what we're referencing. We're referencing the meal that is being provided, the supper that is on that table. That belongs to the Lord. It is His. He owns it. He owns it. When you go home this afternoon and you sit down at your dinner table and meat is brought out, potatoes are brought out, vegetables are brought out, bread is brought out, you, you, you could say, and I, I'm not, not in the great theological sense, of course, the cattle on a thousand hills is the Lord, it belongs to Him. But in a certain sense, that's your food. Okay? Your neighbor does not have the right to eat that food. You may give it to him, you may share it, but he doesn't have the right, he doesn't have the ownership of it. That's part of the the experience and frustration with many living in our world and in our society today. Everybody thinks they have the right to the next guy's stuff. Now, I don't have a 55-inch TV, so I can just walk into your house and watch your 55-inch TV. I have the right to do so. You shouldn't have that right exclusively. You have a cell phone? I should have the right to that cell phone. You have money, I should have the right to your money. We've lost the sense of the possessive, that it belongs to us. It is our right to do with the food that is on that table. We may share that with who we desire. It is ours. The point I want to make about this meal is that this is the Lord's. This isn't Bob Van Manen's bread and juice. This isn't little farms. This isn't the elders. This isn't the Orthodox Presbyterian churches. This belongs to the Lord. It's His. He has the right to it. So look, Think about that. It, it's, it's the Lord's. It's the Lord's because He's the one who is providing what is on that table. He is the one that is putting on that table that which we shall eat and that which we shall drink. Paul goes into great detail in this passage of 1 Corinthians saying, listen, this is how I received my instructions from the Lord in regards to this table. Jesus said, This is my body. This is my blood. 
This is mine. Now, yes, I went to Panera Bread. I bought the bread. Honey wheat bread from Panera Bread. Yes, we went to Myers and brought, you know, uh, Welch's grape juice. But it belongs to the Lord. See, if I took that bread home and put it on my table, cut it up, sliced it, it's mine. I, I, I can give that bread to who I desire to give it with, who I desire to share it with. But on this table, this is the Lord's. Because it's Him. See, I think sometimes that's what... That's what we miss as Protestants. We, we, we blow past this. We're, we're, so, we're so uptight and we're so fixated on making sure we, we don't go down that, that route of, of thinking there is some sort of change of substance that somehow or another this bread is actually changed into the body of Christ and juice is actually changed into blood of Christ that that we go so far over that we dismiss all of it that we forget the reality of this is my body, this is my blood. This is Christ. That's the reality of this. If we, see, if we do not grasp that, then we are where the Corinthians were. They didn't recognize it either. See, they weren't seeing it either. That's why Paul is dealing with them in this passage. They're missing it. They're looking at this as just a piece of bread and just some wine for them, juice. That's all. That, that's all they're seeing. It's just a continuation of their pot trust. They had the pot trust in the gym. They ate. They drank. Not in a good way. Let me briefly explain. The rich people bought their picnic baskets filled with stuff, set it up. The poor people probably couldn't come with much, if anything, set it up. Who gets to go first? Rich people. So all the rich people would go through, eat and eat and eat and eat and eat. Then it's, okay, you poor people can come. Nothing left. Rich people ate it all up. Well, this isn't good. Paul says, that's not right. That's not loving. That's not the way. And then you come to the Lord's table and you do the same thing. Because you ate first over there in the gym, you come to the chapel, you come to the church, you sit down and you go, well, now I'll eat first here too. You eat and drink and you leave. Poor people are still in there waiting for their first out of the fellowship meal. Paul's saying to these Corinthians, you don't grasp the significance of that bread and cup. You're treating it as not an appetizer, but an afterwards. This is just part of your regular meal. This is nothing big. This is nothing important. You need to know. You need to see. You need to recognize. See, how often doesn't Paul come back to that here? You need to recognize the body of the Lord. You need to see that in this meal. If you do not see Christ in this meal, 
then it is not the Lord's Supper that you are participating in. But you see, that's the understanding of we need to see Christ here spiritually present amongst us. That He is here. He is here because it's the Lord's Supper. Not only that it's possessed by Him, it belongs to Him, but He's there. Hence the song, Christ the victim, Christ the priest. It's not only His meal, but He is the meal. Thirdly, in regards to that then, not only is it the Lord's, not only is it provided but it is also then his invitation. He gets to decide who comes. It's like you get to decide who comes to your supper table. Who comes? It's your invitation. That's your table. That's your meal. You can invite who you want. That's your decision. This is the Lord's table. The Lord invites who He wants to invite. I don't ask you to do this, but you may look up and down the aisle. Don't do it. But you may look up and down the aisle and say, I don't think that person is worthy to come to the table. I don't think they should come. I don't know why God would want them to be a Christian. It's not your decision to make. You don't get to decide that. See, that's the Lord's invitation. Grace goes where the Lord desires that grace to go. That's what the Corinthians had to learn, you see. There was the feeling in the church of Corinth that because you were poor, You didn't deserve to really be there. You were a second-class, third-class, fourth-class citizen. And probably based upon your background, if you go into the book of Corinthians, you find that several of these folks there in the church of Corinth had some pretty stained backgrounds. It's a pretty mixed bag of people in this church, and I'm sure there were some of the Jewish background, who had lived their pure and holy lives, who are looking down the aisle going, certainly that homosexual practicer two years ago doesn't deserve to be at the table with me. Oh yes, they do. God's grace extends. Even that adulterer, God's grace extends. Even to that greedy, God's grace extends. God gets to decide, not us. That's why the practice, I believe, biblically, in some churches where some folks come up and participate in the Lord's Supper, they go sit down, other people come, is a violation of what Paul said to do here. Paul said, don't let one eat first and then another. You all eat at the same time. Why? Because there's a less passing of a judgment 
See, somebody comes forward and eats. What's, what's it? You know, you're watching them. You're going, them? They're up there? Why are they up there? Man, they don't deserve to be up there. Well, all sorts of judgment is going on, which is in violation of exactly what Paul said should not be happening at the Lord's Supper. You eat all at once. You drink all at once. Why? Because we are all under grace. God gets to decide who comes. It's His invitation. His invitation of grace. It is His invitation that sets the standards. Who may come? Those, Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 11, who are able to discern the body. Those who understand. Those who are knowledgeable. Those who get it. Those who see and understand what is taking place here. That they understand that Christ is the one who gave His life for their sin. They understand that they are a sinner. They understand their need of Christ. They understand the need of seeking to live in a way that is right and correct, biblical, righteous. That's why Paul has to add, don't judge yourself on that matter. Because if we all judged ourselves, we'd all go, oh yeah, I'm perfect. I make no sin. Some of you have sayings that go along with that when you're thinking about somebody who who doesn't ever think that they sin. Paul says, no, 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 no. That's up to the Lord. What does he mean by that? He means that's up to the church. That's, That's the elder's business. It's not for you to make that decision. And unless you've been told as a member of the church you may not participate. You're welcome. You're welcome to come. The judgment has been made. You're welcome to come to the table of the Lord. Not you judging yourselves, but the judgment of the Lord. The judgment of the elders. The representatives of Christ. See, it's the Lord who gets to do that. See, you might be sitting here, maybe you're a visitor this morning. Don't know. But maybe you're sitting here going, I don't like these requirements at the beginning of this bulletin. I'm offended. It's not our requirement. That's what the Lord expects. That's what the Lord sets as the standard. It's not me, it's Bob's standard. It's not the elder's standard. It's not even our denomination's standard. It's the biblical standard set here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Lord's requirements. Thirdly, this morning, not only is it a biblical term, not only is it a possessive term that it belongs to the Lord, but it is also a comforting term. The Lord's Supper. Matthew Henry contended that actually the only time the church should ever participate Partake of the Lord's Supper is in the evening. It's not a morning meal. It's an evening meal. I'm not so sure he's right on that, but he does give us pause to stop and think, doesn't it? What does the supper represent? Why why is it the Lord's Supper? Why isn't it the Lord's breakfast? Why isn't it the Lord's lunch? Let's stop and think about that. Just think about that. Because a supper represents a fellowship. 
Now, probably not in our day and age, but for some of you growing up, you understand that, right? Breakfast was here, there, and everywhere, okay? People getting up, dad was off to work, 6 o'clock, kids got up, went to school at 7 o'clock, whatever. Everybody's all over the place. Besides, everybody's minds on what the day is, what's going to happen. Lunch, it's in the middle of work, isn't it, okay? Families are split out, spread out everywhere. Supper is the time, what? You come together. You come together as a family. You talk about the day. You talk about what's happened. Some of you have family worship. You read God's Word. You spend time in prayer. It's a supper. It's a fellowship. See, there's meaning behind the term. And the term is a term of comfort. See, the Lord invites us to a supper. He doesn't invite us to breakfast and lunch. He invites us to fellowship. He invites us to commune. As Paul referred to in 1 Corinthians 10. He invites us to spend time with him and with one another. That's why the term celebration is right. This is a time to look at the goodness of the Lord and the grace of the Lord. Not only to me, but to you. And we celebrate that. It's a fellowship. It's a supper. And we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ at the table of our Father with our elder brother, Jesus Christ. And we have supper together. It's a term of comfort, not only because it's a fellowship, but it is also a reminder. It's a reminder we're hungry. It's a reminder we're starving. It's a reminder that we're thirsty. We are hungering and thirsting after Christ. See, that's what a supper is, right? You you come to supper, why? Because you've toiled in the heat of the day. You've worked that afternoon through. And you're hot, you're tired, you're hungry, you're thirsty. We've lived life. Since the last time we were at this table, we hunger and thirst for communion with Christ, for communion with one another. We hunger and thirst for righteousness that is found in Christ. This is a comforting term because we know we're going to come to the meal and we will not be disappointed. We shall be fed. We shall be satisfied. This supper is a nourishment a nourishment for our souls. Say, let me, let me give you two illustrations, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. Remember in the Old Testament, this, this whole bit about manna? Did you ever go back and actually look up how much manna they could pick up? It wasn't a lot. I'm going and looking at how much manna they got in that jar, and I'm going, I think I'm going to be hungry by 10 a.m. I don't care how you fix this stuff, I'm going to be hungry by 10 No, you only get this amount. Why? Because that's all you need. Why? Why is that all I need? Lord, I need much more than that. I could use five times as much. No, this is all you need. But Lord, my my little child, so little, they can't eat it. No, that's what they need. What's happening? God is providing 
God is taking that little that they collected and nourishing them and strengthening them for the day. You probably guessed where I'm going in the New Testament, right? Little boy with his lunch, these few loaves. What can all that do for all these people? Is the disciples. Now, how many people don't come to this and say, What's that little piece of bread going to do for me? And he takes the bread and he breaks the bread and he feeds so much so that there's leftovers. You see, God can take the little that we are given. And with that, what we see with our eyes as little, God in our hearts and in our souls nourishes us with Christ and satisfies us in a way that is beyond human comprehension. See, there is a miracle taking place here. The miracle is not that the bread becomes physical body of Christ or that the the juice becomes physical blood. That's not the miracle. The miracle is that God takes those small little elements and nourishes our souls. Let me put it to you this way. For some, maybe, I hope most of you get this. Did you ever walk away from Grandma's table hungry? She always fed you more than what you needed. Do you think your heavenly Father is going to invite you to a supper and not feed you and nourish you and strengthen you with all that you need? Come for the feast is spread. And God's people say,